Well, good evening. And so uh, it's a privilege for me to be with you. I've asked for a chair um, because I really don't want to preach. Maybe if I get to a chair, I would, I would then not be in a mood to preach. Because <laughs> when I have a talk. <laughs> so um, I'm African from Port Elizabeth. Um, and I've been here um, before. So <laughs> this is my first time. And um, I've got two books that are out. My third one now we're launching. My first book is Christianity and the Veneration of Ancestors. And it asks the question, should a Christian consult the dead? And you think, okay, the answer should be obvious, but it's not so obvious. So we had major, amazing discussions with people around the consultation of, of the dead. And I was at AE, African Enterprise, in Peter Marisbeck before I came here. And one of the discussions I had was with the staff and, um, and a lot of South Africans would claim to be Christian. But when you zoom into it and talk about specific issues, you realize it's not real Christianity. It's, it's a, a, a confession of the mouth, not a reality of the heart. So my second book is Freed by God, but Imprisoned by Culture. This is where I talk about cultural practices, identity issues. When a person says, this is who I am, defining themselves based on the parameters of culture. And, you know, we have to break those things down to people. It's not easy because people believe certain things. And uh, because they've believed something for a long time, they think it's true. So believing something for a long time doesn't make it true. It just means that you've endured on a lie for a long time. You know, so, so the fact that something has been taught to you for a long time doesn't make it true. So truth is not how long something has been taught. Truth is something that is absolute, regardless of circumstances. We don't make truth, we discover truth. You know, so truth is not something you have to agree on. Truth is truth independent of your views. You don't, have, you don't have to vote for truth, for truth to become truth. Truth is truth regardless of whether you buy into it or not. It doesn't need your support. For instance, Jesus is Lord. Those who don't believe it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is Lord. So it doesn't need people who believe it to make it true. It is a reality that Jesus is Lord. He's not asking for people to buy into the fact that he's Lord. He's not asking for a favor. That please believe in me. Otherwise, I feel insecure in this place. I've lost you. He's Lord, regardless of what people think of him. And my third book, which we're talking about tonight, is actually the first book I started writing. But then I stopped writing, and then I went to the other book, Veneration. And then people asked me why. I said, the answer is simple. You only follow inspiration. So when inspiration ended... On, the, on this book I'm going to talk to you about. And it came into the issue of ancestors. I had to follow inspiration and do that. So that was still, my, my veneration of ancestors came out in 2013. And this one, therefore, would have, I would have been writing it prior to that. This book is called A Passion for Position. A Call to Servant Leadership. I wrote it when I noticed more and more Christian leaders are beginning to adopt leadership models that are contrary with the values of Jesus. I began to see models of leadership in 2013 that are complete antithesis of what Christ stood for. Um, leadership that was not, to me, representing the kingdom of God. And I, I was bothered by this. And I want to talk to you what I mean by that. And so I started writing. And by the grace of God, uh, Strake, who publishes for Coombe and other bookstores, picked up this manuscript and they loved it. And they published it. 
And now the book is listed at Coom, exclusive books at CNA, you know, by the grace of God, um, which is rare for South African authors to be listed at Coom. So I'm like, wow, it's amazing. You know, so um, God has done amazing things. Um, and I'm told, and I'm think, I think it might be true, I'm not aware of any South African besides, okay, Angus is there and various other Africans' authors. Um, but in terms of demographic labels, if we use them in terms of black, South African, I was saying this to my pastor, he corrected me. He said, no, no, black African, totally, completely. There's no one else except you. I was saying this to me. And I thought to myself, it's actually true. If you go and check the list of books at Kuhn, it's American authors. T.D. Jakes, the Creflo, so-and-so. Not South African authors. Yet this leadership issue I'm going to talk to you about has, an, has to... Has to address leadership is universal, I agree, but there are issues that address a specific context, which is unique to us than it is in other parts of the world. And so, for instance, one of the things that happened is this because of our cultural, where we come from in terms of our different cultures. So, in one culture, I'll be introduced to as Africa, in another culture, I'll be introduced to as Pastor Africa. They're neither right nor wrong. The issue is what they're emphasizing. There's neither one right, there's neither one that's wrong. Now the problem is this, is when there's an expectation or a requirement to be referred to in a specific way as some kind of a sign of identity that must be addressed in a specific way. Titles, right? So today we have a lot of Christian leaders I meet them and introduce themselves to me as apostle so-and-so. So I look at the person and I'm like, is apostle your first name? <laughs> I mean, I'm not aware, maybe your mother did give you that name, that you apostle as your first name. Because here's the thing. <laughs> when you meet a doctor, you want to meet an engineer, or a pharmacist, or a waiter, or a plumber, they don't introduce themselves as Plumber Steve. Am I right? There's no engineer, John. There's John an engineer. Only in the church do you get somebody who uses his function as part of his title. Anywhere else, you find a pharmacist. It doesn't say, I'm pharmacist, Sally. But doctors and professors, in the majority of cases, the professional titles that distinguish doctors are often never used by the doctors themselves, but acknowledged by people around them that this is a doctor. Doctors themselves hardly even introduce themselves as doctors unless it's a professional setup, and there's a specific reason why that has to be done. But the ones I've met, they don't introduce themselves as Dr. So-and-so. They may say, so I'm, I'm John Smith, I'm, I'm, I'm a physician, or I'm, 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 I'm an operationist, or I'm a gynecologist, or I'm a pediatrician. But if it's important in our conversation, for instance, you meet a person, and there are two questions you may ask. Who are you and what do you do? These are two different questions requiring two different answers. And most people do not answer the questions, both of them, unless you ask them. Who are you and what do you do? Okay, then I'll tell you, I pastor a church. People don't tell you what they do before you ask them, unless they're pastors. <laughs> they tell you their name and what they do at the same time, without you having asked. I mean, I'm African, I'm that's it. Then you want to know more. Then I tell you, I pastor a church. 
You know? But if I'm insecure, I'll tell you all of them at once. Because I want you then to address me in a specific way. Because I see my pastoral function as part of who I am, not part of what I do. So, so these are the issues that, that this book addresses. Now, you have read many stories today of controversial issues around pastors. There's one here who was arrested. I was in our jail in PE. We were taking care of him for the last two years. Uh, we were keeping him there in St. Alban's prison. He was arrested here in Deben and Mshanga with all these girls whom he was uh, you know, having all the sexual issues with them. And you know this man, if you look at it, you ask yourself, I ask myself this question, I'm in PE and this man is in my city. What have I done when he was there for 16 years to have you know, done a contract to address this? And I'm like, I did not do much. I just focused on my church. Because it was there. And, and I realized, you know, when he would come to the airport, the airports, whatever he would travel, people would bow down when he walks out. Okay? So that's the kind of power he had. People would bow down. So if, I was, if he was drinking a bottle of water, and if he threw the bottle of water away, people, someone would want to pick it up and just drink, or they would put their lips on the bottle because it's anointing, apparently, or something special is on the, in that because the man of God was drinking from that bottle. And, and that's the kind of church that we are having that is obsessed with these kinds of people. And uh, it works for the people who have these positions. They have lots of benefit from this. It's, it's very beneficial. People do what you want them to do. They do what you tell them. You tell them to jump, they jump. You tell them to go outside and eat grass. Guess what they do? They go outside and eat grass. I've never heard of it before, but, but apparently human beings can eat grass. <laughs> I didn't know it's possible, but in the church, the church has taught us many things. Besides singing worship songs, the church has taught us that human beings can also eat grass like cows. I prefer to drink the white milk from a cow that eats green grass. I don't want to eat the grass. I'm happy to get the white milk from a cow that eats green grass. That's only the relationship. The only relationship I have with a cow is that I give you grass, you give me milk. Otherwise, I don't eat the grass. I just want to get the results of you having eaten the grass. I don't want to break the process. You eat the grass, I get the milk. That's the covenant I have with the cow. It works together. So, um, so we, have, we have these issues. Now, I want to talk to you about, um, maybe just to... Zoom into a person called Moses. You know Moses. And I want to show you how he was called. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, Moses is, by all intents and purposes, before this encounter I'm going to share with, he's going to be dying as a shepherd. He will live a life of running away as a fugitive from Egypt, and he's going to end up as a shepherd in the plains of Midian, and how his fathers-in-law Jethro, that's the end of Moses. That would have been the end of Moses had not an encounter occurred with God there. This encounter, which we know is the burning bush experience that Moses had, which the Lord speaks to him in this experience that is divine. God speaks to Moses, which if I was Moses, if I was, if I was today having a burning bush experience with God, I will have a yearly commemoration of this occurrence. I will be amazed because 
I'll have a conference, I'll have a church, I'll have a ministry called Bending Bush. It'll be amazing because nobody has had this. I'll be like, I mean, there are pastors everywhere in this nation. You can hear God, and what, but none of you here has ever had the burning bush that never gets consumed. So you need to recognize that God is, you know, out. It will be amazing to me to, to talk to God like that. So Moses had encounters with God that are unmatched then, unmatched today. There's been people who have operated in the power of God, but nothing similar to what Moses walked in. Nobody who goes, went to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights without food for all those days with a lightning and thundering and in the midst of the thunder, nobody's allowed to come in except this one guy. In the thunder, he's talking to God face to face. Nobody has ever had that experience. As far as I know. <laughs> Nobody had a rod that would make the Red Sea part and stand like walls and be walk through dry ground. Nobody had a cloud following him for 40 years. And a ball of fire by night. And a good point and bread comes out from heaven. And quails drop. And plagues over Egypt. I mean the kind of power Moses walked in. The whole Old Testament is called the law of Moses. This man is taken backwards into Genesis creation's story. He's taken back, he's taken forward. by revelation. He speaks of Jesus in Deuteronomy 18. He will raise a prophet amongst you. In, the sim- in my similitude. He speaks of Jesus. He's, he goes into the future. He goes into the past. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. He wasn't there. I mean, he walks in such a revelation. There's clarity between God and Moses. There's no, there's no, there's no one else. He says, every prophet I speak in parables, in dark speeches. But with Moses, my servant, I speak face to face. I mean, he had so much authority. Even physical, natural death could not take Moses out. He couldn't even die of old age. God had to kill Moses himself. I mean, he, Aaron died of old age, not Moses. Aaron died in Numbers 23, on the top of the mountain. Moses could not even die. God says, oh, now I'll kill you. <laughs> Imagine. This guy is so powerful. He has so much power. But he is given a position of leadership because God says to Moses, Moses, I have seen the pain of my people under the Egyptian taskmasters. I've heard their cry. I know their sorrow. Go. So Moses gets a position because of the bad position of God's people. So Moses owes his position to the position that God's people were in. In other words, had God's people not been in a bad position, Moses would never have a position. So Moses' position exists to change the position of God's people. That's why he in position. He would not have been in leadership had God's people not been under, under, under Egyptian oppression. So, therefore, how do we judge if Moses is successful in ministry or not? Exactly. You cannot judge Moses that leadership is in leadership because he preached. You cannot judge him because he pointed and the Red Sea parted. You cannot judge him because he wrote the Old Testament. You judge him on what he was assigned to do in the first place. All these things are tools and resources to help him achieve the goal. The goal is to take people out of Egypt into the promised land. And that's the only way to judge Moses' ministry. Not on any miracle he did, but on the results of those miracles. Our people moved from oppression to freedom. And Moses himself never gets into the promised land. 
doesn't go there. Because he's not the one called to go to the promised land. He's the one who's sent to take people in and doesn't go himself. And that's called successful leadership. Today's leaders are in the promised land themselves. The people are in Egypt. And they call this, we call this successful leadership. The ministers, the leaders we look up to, the majority of them are in the promised land with their people in Egypt under bondage. And these are the people we look up to as successful leaders. But they're not supposed to be in Egypt, in Canaan. They're supposed not to enter Canaan, if needs be. Not that it's wrong, because Moses wanted, wanted, originally was designed to go in. So, in fact, for this one I understand. It's amazing. Society. <laughs> Moses prays, he says a statement to God. I, I don't think we are ready to say it, most of us. We shouldn't, we're not ready. It's, it's, it's a level of self alternating leadership that I've not seen before. When God says, let me go and destroy the Israelites, they're worshipping a golden calf, just step aside, I will destroy them, I'll raise a new people with you. He says to God, Lord, blot out my name. Blot out my name from your books. Don't kill the Israelites. He asked God to blot out his name from the eternal books just that he must not take away the people. I mean, I have not met that kind of leadership. You tell God that I'm prepared not to go to heaven. Take, out, take me out, but don't kill the people. I've not had that leadership before. It's rare. So look, Lord, do anything. Take me out, rather. Take me out. Take all their sin, put it on me, write me off your books, erase my name, but I keep them. That's the real leadership. You see this type of leadership with parts of it with Paul. When he says, how I travail. He says, I travail that Christ be formed in you. He says, I don't rest. I have this agitation. I'm travailing like a child, like a woman giving birth until there's a destination. There's a place to arrive at. Not until I finish preaching my sermons. Not until you've given offerings. Not until I have a mega church. Not until I've written books. Not until I'm on TV. No, not those things. Until Christ is formed in you. That's why I exist, guys. Even says, I desire to go, but it's, it's for your benefit that I remain. For me, personally, I would rather go, but for your benefit, I will, I will stay behind longer. I will linger longer because I want to make sure that Christ is formed in you. So I betrothed you to one husband. You are chastened to one person. You are a virgin. You have one husband. He doesn't say you belong to me. He says you belong to him. You've got one husband. I'm keeping you safe for this one person. There's a marriage that has been prepared. And I'm making sure that you meet him, the husband. Glorious without spot or wrinkle. That's my mission. To bring you to him. To usher you to meet the king. My ministry is not important. As long as you get there. Jesus shows us an example of this when he meets the woman of the world in John chapter 4. He engages this woman after telling the disciples not to go to Samaria. But he goes to Samaria. Or same day, it's an issue of timing. He goes to Samaria. He does many things that at that time were unheard of. He talks to a woman as a Jewish rabbi 
It's totally not allowed. It breaks that gender barrier, racial barrier, cultural barrier. As a Jewish male rabbi talks to a woman alone, you don't do that. Especially a Samaritan, mixed breed. He talks to the woman, he breaks many barriers in that conversation. He talks about water, which is nothing else but a conversation starter. We didn't need the water. We just needed to create a conversation. And they engage in this conversation about which well, which water, all that. The woman says, after he talked to her about her husband, she says, Say, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's right, man. He's correct. She's spot on. He's a prophet. He's the greatest prophet that ever lived, Jesus. He's the greatest bishop that ever lived, greatest apostle, the greatest pastor that ever lived, the greatest evangelist that ever lived. But Jesus does something kind of amazing. He does not confirm that he's a prophet. He simply says, the time shall come, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father and Spirit. He simply shifts focus to the Father. Then after speaking to this woman, the woman says, um, Sir, we know the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. He then says to her, The one you're speaking to is he. The one you're speaking to is he. I thought to myself, He shows total ambivalence to the idea of being a prophet. He's at liberty to confirm that he's a Messiah. I said, Why? Oh, he's focused on winning a soul rather than promoting a ministry. It's more important for him to reach the soul and the city of Samaria than to be known with the reputation of being a prophet. That's how Jesus focused the issue. He never focused on self-promotion. It was not important. He never used many of his messianic titles, for instance, which belong rightfully where he is. King of kings, lord of lords, great pontiac. He never used any of them. He simply says, son of man. The son of man must suffer. He identified with humanity and dropped divinity. The son of man must suffer. The son of man must do this. And his disciples come to him, John and James, through their mother, sons of Zebedee. Sit on the right, sit on the left. He was positioned in the kingdom. I mean, they're already in a privileged place. They want to, I mean, to be on the 12, the core team. It's powerful already as it is. They want more. So when, when the kingdom comes, when we're in heaven, we want to be seated strategically for eternity. Forever. We want people, we want people to, when they look at the throne, we want them to also see us. That's what they basically ask me. They want it to be right there on the throne. When people are, the whole, the whole world is gazing at the throne, as the one who's on the throne, we want the monster to see us right there. We don't want to be the side of the people. We want to be right there on the throne. The big shots, the front seat, the front row. Jesus says, it's not mine to give such position. Whoever desires, he says, he calls them aside. The disciples, he calls them aside. So in my book, I say, Christians have been called aside. We've been called to a different value system. He says, you have observed what is done in the kingdom of the Gentiles. You've observed it. You see what they do. Those who are leaders, they lord it over them. They make a point of showing off their leadership. Amongst you, it shall not be so. He says that. Amongst you, that is prohibited. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be the servant of them all. But we don't see that in church today. I don't know about you, but for me, I can tell who the, who the pastor of the church is. When I walk into a service, I can tell who the pastor is, even if I've not met him. 
Because I know I can look at the seat, sitting arrangement. I just know who the pastor is. Because his seat is somewhere special and different. Some of them not even the kind of seats we sit in. They're different. Maybe you see. You see, like a throne. So guys sit like a throne. They sit in front and they become special. Like kings. In fact, there are some of them who call themselves kings. And I look, I look at this, I'm like, I don't understand how they got it so wrong. And they come with bodyguards, with an entourage, and uh, they make a big deal of their entrance, grand entrance. And they come and everybody must pay attention to them. And the service gets really, really serious when the man of God comes in. Otherwise, all the time, we're just warming up. <laughs> we're just warming up, preparing for them. And then, when the God comes, then we are like, God is in the house. Now, we make us, let's worship God. Like, the whole time, we're just doing a warm-up. This is what I've noticed. In fact, I was preaching at a university in South Africa. I write about this in my book. In my book, I've got a chapter, or a chapter where I talk about, is leadership about showing up, or is it about showing off? Showing up, or showing So I was in a university, and so I'm about to minister there. So I'm sitting in the car because the students, their services are long, okay? And they sing, and they've got choirs. Testimonies, not problem, no, no problem. It's just that I would rather miss some of it, so it doesn't dilute my message. So I'm sitting in the car, just listening to worship, and they said to me, "No, you need to come in because the people must see the speaker. I mean, they must see the guest speaker." Okay, like the service is not going to have any shape or substance. They don't see. Okay, I walk in because you know you need to be obedient and walk in grudgingly. I'm sitting there, I'm listening to all the choirs, I'm like, oh God, it's nice music, but really, I you know, you, when you were in the church and you're listening to everything, you can maybe actually change your message to think, this is something I may be addressing, because it's a problem. So, and, uh, and the guy who's an MC, he asked me to write biographical information with which to use to introduce me. Okay, so I take a piece of paper, and I write, my husband, one child, pastor of a church, three lines. I gave it to him. <laughs> I'm continuing to worship. I can see him, but the corner, the corner of my eye, he's not happy with this. <laughs> he sees like, I'm like, like, yeah, I got you. <laughs> I got you. Because I know what he wants. I know what he wants. He wants to tell me what nations I've traveled to, what media appearances, anything like glamorous. And I deliberately kept it out. That's what he wants. <laughs> And then, you think this guy, I'm not, okay, I wrote about this in my book. He decided, no, he's not going to allow me to deprive him the opportunity to make an issue. He embellished the whole thing I've given him. So I'm sitting there. The man who's about to stand here. <laughs> he's an apostle. <laughs> he's a prophet. He's a teacher. He's a, he's a man that God has raised for such a time as this. So I'm sitting there thinking, Ivo, who's he talking about? <laughs> I'm lost. I'm like, he's talking about me. And, and uh, the Holy Spirit could not... I mean, the theme of that conference was a spirit-led generation. Spirit-led generation. Zechariah 4 verse 6. Not by mind, not by power, but by my spirit. You know? It's like a Zerubbabel. It's a theme. And so I stand. I cannot keep quiet about this. I can either do it my sermon, but I just cannot let this pass. It's so bad. I take the mic and I say, guys, um, 
That was unnecessary. The reputation that matters in a service is God's reputation, not of the preachers. It was quiet. As all 500 people, the auditorium is packed. All the chairs are occupied. People are sitting on stairs. They're standing. It's packed. And it became like... It's like you pop the balloon. Like, really? So that I messed it up. Then I said, before I ministered, that by the way, the Holy Spirit is going to move here today. People looked at me like, we'll see this one. <laughs> you know, he... He did what he, he did it. He, he did what he does best when he's given room. I said I preached and I sat down. For thirty minutes you could go somewhere and back. There was nothing that was moving except the Holy Spirit for no one praying for anybody, no one using a microphone. People were on the floor for thirty over thirty minutes flat without anybody standing in front. I sat on my chair. I didn't take the microphone. after I preached, I sat down. He just came. The whole place was flooded. They were under the chairs. They were receiving deliverance. There was deep ministry of the Holy Spirit. And there was no one leading the service. After I preached, I sat down. He proved he doesn't need our help. He just needs our cooperation. He proved the point. The guys took the microphone. After they were seeing, the, they were excited. They took the microphone. They can't miss this. Come on, come on, stand up. Receive, receive. And they made the non thought and said, oh... Somebody has to take the credit, shame. It's so bad. Somebody has to take the spotlight. We just can't allow him to be him. We, we, we need to interfere. Because we, we are so insecure. We have such issues. So the pulpit is occupied a lot by orphans, not by sons. There's a lot of orphans in the pulpit. Very few sons. Jesus has called a son in Matthew 3. The, but the Father opens the heavens and... Uh, Holy Spirit comes down and he speaks that validating voice. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. He had not preached one message. He had not healed one sick person. The father says, I'm pleased with him. Pleased by who he is, not what he does. A person is a son by birth, not by behavior. You don't earn sonship. So Jesus, God is pleased with him. So God, we don't do anything to earn God's pleasure. He's pleased with us. Regardless of what we do or don't do. So I found the problem is that some guys, they think what I do for God increases my value to God. It doesn't. We're equal in value, but different in function. So what we do for God doesn't increase. You cannot make God love you more. You can't make God love you less. There's nothing you can do to make God feel differently about you because how he feels about you is totally his own volition. There's nothing to do with what you do. It's God decided to love you regardless of whether you're lovable or not. There's nothing to do with what you have done for him. It is God's initiative to love us with an unconditional love which is in the fullness. There's no variation. It doesn't grow. You don't worship God for an hour and he loves you more than that after that. You can't, make, you can't grow God's love. It doesn't grow. Because love is a person, not, not a thing, not an expression. It's not what he has, it's who he is. And God cannot grow. God is great, and we can't make him greater. He becomes greater in us when we acknowledge his greatness. The word glory, when we say we give you glory, we really say we acknowledge your glory, in essence, the truth of that. Glory is the essence of what a thing is. So we don't really give God glory. We acknowledge his glory. We can't make more glorious. We simply see in our hearts how glorious he is. 
and we make Him glorious by acknowledging that He is glorious. So there's nothing that we can do to improve God. God cannot be improved. He's self-sufficient. He's the I am. He's the eternal one. He's like... So when we, even when I preach in a church and I have a, a revelation of something powerful, essence, a revelation is nothing else but God's self-disclosure. It's God revealing Himself, a part of Himself that was hidden for us. There's nothing that my prayers yielded me to a level of... of so it's not like I discovered something about God that I wouldn't have. It's only God revealing something about Himself. Let me give you an example. We have got angels here in this room. We don't see them. The fact that we don't see them doesn't mean they're not present. It's because we're in the realm of light, we're in the realm of matter. And light travels faster than matter. Okay? So, when, for us to see angels, the Lord must either freeze or slow down an angel for it to be perceivable in our realm. Or lift us off from our realm into the realm of light. Then we see the angel. But oh, it's already there in the first place, all the time. So we don't really have these powerful revelations as we think we sometimes do. It's simply God just saying to the mortal man, can these bones live? Giving you the ability to partake with him of what he already is doing. And just join with him and partner with him in his divine mission. So, I'm in leadership. So in leadership, I have people. Now there's a difference between people who follow you because you're a leader and people who follow you because you happen to walk in the same direction. So, give me an example. You might look back as a leader and you find people are following you. And you might think they are really following you. The reality is that it's because maybe you're going the same direction. That's why they're behind you. <laughs> it's you. There are so many people are following me. <laughs> Check. When you change direction, if they're still behind you, yeah. <laughs> then you know if they're following you. For instance, Jesus was followed by 5,000 people because he had a fish and chips um, shop. <laughs> he gave them fish and loaves. That's the, only, that's the only reason why they came. He was dishing out fish and loaves. They loved it. Oh, that church is so powerful. The rabbi preaches well. We love his sermons. He's a good rabbi, but he even gives fish and chips for free. We love him even more. <laughs> so Jesus realized, hey, I'm being followed here for the wrong reasons. They don't really want what I'm preaching. They want what I'm offering. So this time around, I'll preach a different sermon. A hard one. Okay, the sermon of today is my flesh and my blood. That's the title of my message. Hmm. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you can't be part of Him. <laughs> well thought. Cannibalism. Cannibalism. We can't stand for this cannibalism. We didn't sign up for this. One by one, this is, okay, excuse me, excuse me. I'm not going to join the cannibalistic church. Excuse me. I will leave you guys behind. <laughs> they left Him one by one. Because I was challenging Him, challenging them. Not to be part just only of what he does, but to be part of him, yeah. of substance, to be one with him. He couldn't take that. And he looked at his disciples. So come. So come. Aren't you going also? <laughs> An effective, secure leader allows people to follow them, follow him, but also gives them permission to leave him. He doesn't curse them when they want to leave doesn't manipulate them. 
He lives, He allows them, they need to live to live. Thank you, going also. And Peter gave an outstanding answer. I love Peter. All his volunteers. <laughs> Sometimes he gets it wrong. But, you know, it's better to have somebody like Peter. Listen, I don't know, some people criticize Peter that he got, uh, he lost faith and, and sink, sank on the water. I'd rather that somebody walked on water even two steps. And Peter is the only one in the whole world. Forget criticizing Peter. You, nobody else dared to even try out of the boat. They sat there. Peter at least tried, even if it didn't go very far. He's known as, is one or two people walked on the water. It's Jesus and Peter. So you must give Peter credit. Jesus and Peter walked on the water. Nobody else did. The fact that it didn't go that far, that's fine. At least he left others eleven on the boat and stepped out. So I like Peter. He always, he knows that it's all of them. Peter says, Jesus says, I must die. Peter says, you shall not. You can't, you shall not. You're not dying. You shall not. Where are they? I want to kill them. Who's trying to kill you? <laughs> Peter is ready to fight. Jesus says, no, Peter. I've got to do this. He even calls them aside. He instructs them. You, Lord, you will not do it. He says, I must wash your feet. Lord, wash my whole body. <laughs> you must wash my whole body. Someone must wash my whole body. <laughs> That's Peter. He's always going for it. I mean, the, the question, who do men say that I am? was asked to everyone. And they gave different answers. And it's Peter who gave what we now know as a foundational truth. You are the Christos, the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. Jesus says, whoa, whoa. Whoa, pause, pause right there on that point. Peter, did you just hear yourself? You didn't get this from, 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 from Facebook and, and Google. <laughs> Peter, how is it that... How did you get the ability to tap into the servers of heaven and download directly? You know, the technology, where do you get that from? You know, I'm bringing it into the, you know, into the now. Peter had a technology that was well ahead of his time. To download directly from Jesus says, whoa, Peter, you are ahead of your time, bro. Way ahead of your time. You've gone directly to the servers of heaven to pull this one out. You didn't get this from any network. Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my father was in heaven. You've gone directly to the main source. Without even my help. You just went in. You draw this in. Peter, that's amazing, man. Jesus, this is amazing. Peter, upon this revelation, upon this revelation truth, this is where I'm going to build my church. This is so amazing. I've got to build my church on this truth. You acknowledge me more than as a, as a prophet, more than as a great teacher, more than as as anything, you have acknowledged me as something that evidently nobody else had picked it up by that time because they keep telling, calling him everything else except this one thing. He says, because you've acknowledged this truth about me, I want to use you as a pillar of the church. Because you, you, you've, you've caught up and says, upon this truth, I'll build on my church. You now will move from being Cephas, an unstable thing, to be Peter the rock. You move from inst- instability to become stable. You become the rock. Peter, you'll be the rock. Because, man, you've got some stuff in you. And so, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And Jesus was very impressed with this. Not everyone picks up who Jesus is. Then, and also now. Christians know about Jesus. Some, and many, don't know Jesus. So we've got to preach Jesus to Christians. We've got to introduce Christians to Jesus. Because they've met a, a reputation 
they've met a whatever, a view of Jesus that is being taught by others. They've not met the real deal. John, for instance, John the Baptist, the son of Zachariah, the son of Elizabeth, were both out of the priestly line. In the Old Testament, a priest had responsibility to confirm that the lamb being brought for sacrifice was the right type of a lamb, without spot, without wrinkle. No one could sacrifice by themselves privately without the confirmation of the priest that this sacrifice fulfills the requirement of the law. Okay? So it's not because you owned your own sheep in, the, in there, you can just take it and, and sacrifice it to God. You have to take it to the priest to affirm and confirm that this is a sacrifice that God would approve of. So John, in the priestly line, born six months before Jesus, existed to confirm Jesus as the Lamb that is right for the sacrifice. That's why he was born ahead of Jesus. When Jesus walks on the river Jordan, John says, they'll behold. Now, to actually refer to a human being as the Lamb takes a special revelation of God. Behold the Lamb of God. That takes away the sin of the world. Because this is not like something that has been taught from Bible school or some, it's not a popular message. You have to catch it by the Spirit. That, listen, we have had lambs before, but behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So John also tapped up into heaven. That's why he's called the greatest amongst the prophets that ever lived in the Old Testament. Jesus says, no one has risen up the level of John. Yet John never gave personal prophecies. He only existed to prepare the way for the Messiah. They ask him three times, who are you? He says, I'm not, I'm, not the, I'm not the prophet. I'm not the Elijah. I'm not the Christ. They didn't ask him that question. He simply had to clarify that also as he answers his question. Because to know who you are, you must know who you are not. I'm not Christ. I, I am the voice. I'm only the voice. of the one crying over us. Make straight the way of the Lord. Somewhere, his two disciples are withdrawn. He says to them, one statement, Behold the Lamb. They left him immediately. They followed Jesus. He lost part of his ministry by acknowledging Jesus. Just said two words, Behold the Lamb. People left him. They followed Jesus. They were his disciples. He lost them because he acknowledged Jesus. It's very hard for you to people to do that today. If you do, I mean... John basically said, look, there's one who's coming who's greater than... And John was the greatest, by the way. Greatest. Old Testament, the transition bridge between Old and New Testament, John is a key person who's a bridge. So under the Old Testament, going to the New, John is the last great guy. He's, he's coming in the spirit of Elijah. God speaks 400 years before. I'm going to restore the heart of the sons to the fathers and the, and the son and before I bring... And all that. And John comes in the spirit of Elijah to connect the Old and the New Testament. He's still ministering under the Old Testament covenant. So he's a great guy under that covenant. And Jesus comes in. So John has to be that bridge. He has to connect both covenants and both testaments and bring them, but bring them into this culmination of this person called Jesus. John is standing there. He then says to people, listen, and everyone is coming to baptize by John, even the Pharisees. He's the most popular guy there. His ministry is flooded by people. Everywhere people are coming to be baptized by John. So he's packed. The Pharisees are there. You could see them from a crowd, from a distance. Who has warned you of the wrath to come? Each generation of vipers. Show fruits worthy of repentance. I mean, they come in their numbers, with their robes, with their religious regalia. John says, I want true repentance. But then he says, listen guys, baptism in water, great stuff. But there's one coming 
There's one coming who's greater than me. He will, not, he, won't, he will baptize you with... I mean, I baptize with water. That's visible. You're flat here. I don't know how you don't have water when you've got so much of it. Even killing people, but you don't have one to drink. It's an amazing thing. In an abundance of water, you don't have water in the house. Which just means that God must help us to harness water. Because UK is at end, always have water. But obviously we need to... I mean, you have water, water problems. I don't know how you become like Cape Town. Anyway. So John, John, John says to... John says... This is my personal reflection of it. John is baptizing people in visible and material product. It's like the old church that was defined by visible things, the edifice. John says, one is coming, and this is my interpretation, greater than me, who will baptize you with what is invisible, but more powerful than this water I'm using. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's got his willowing fan in his hand. He's going to come. When he comes, he'll, he'll fill you with something you cannot see. But when you receive this thing, the axe the, the out of you will be visible. You'll be filled with something invisible, but the results will be visible. You shall receive power, says Jesus in Acts 1 verse 8. After the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and guess what? After that, you'll be witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, so John says, guys, the water is good. Water is fine. You need that. But there's something you've got to get that nobody can see with their eyes. When it comes upon you, you would know because it's full of fire. Holy Spirit and fire. And this man is so great. I'm not even worthy to tie the sandals that he's wearing. And they come and the conversation begins between John and Jesus. Who should baptize who? They discuss. John says, I can't baptize you. You don't have sin. You know, baptism is for repentance of sin. You don't have sin. I couldn't baptize you. He says, let us do it. Fulfill all righteousness. Listen to this. Jesus had to walk a distance eh, to come to John's baptism. It wasn't just next door. So it took humility on the side of Jesus to go to John's baptism. To acknowledge the ministry of John. The greater one did not get threatened in the presence of one who was great. And the one who's great could acknowledge the one who's greater than him. So these two leaders could submit one to another on different occasions without feeling threatened. So John comes in and it's like, I mean, to baptize, you have to baptize a person, you have to t- touch them physically and bring them down to the water. So John actually physically is taking Jesus into the water, the Son of God. And he submits to that. John obviously is terrified of this experience. It's like, I've done lots of things, but I don't think I should be doing this. She says, let's do it. And it, they say, they, they, they go down. The Bible says, when they came up, they came up because they went down. That's why they came up. When they came up, something happens in the heavenlies. But, so they came up because they went down. The Bible says, if you humble yourselves in the presence of God, He, he gives grace to the humble. So those who go down, provoke heaven to open up and declare things. So they, when they came up, the heavens opened. God was like, I'm pleased with this. You guys, I mean, heavens opened because says, now this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, that, that, that situation, you need to read it very pro- properly. There, there, has, there had to be certain things had to happen for that voice to be released. There, there, there are certain things that are waiting. So certain things had to happen. Certain things had, certain boxes had to be ticked. 
And when everything was ticked, the voice from heaven spoke. This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Leadership, uh, humility does not, humility is not, is not demotion. Humility is not taking away the person's power. It's positioning the person for more power. Actually. Because God gives grace to the humble. So, so those who get humble, they get more. It's not like they get less. They actually get more. They provoke God for more. So, so when you choose humility, you're choosing to, you, you're asking God, I'd like to get more, please. <laughs> when you are proudful, he resists the proud. Even that which he gave you, he takes it away. Because he's disappointed at the posture you portray. So humility is good. It's a beneficial position. It's not a position of loss. So he says, and, and he speaks, heaven's open, and the voice speaks, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Jesus comes out, immediately goes to the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. After the anointing, there's temptation. There's test. To now test not the level of the anointing, but the level of character. So there's giftedness, then there's character, cultivation, fruit. After both have passed, the giftedness and the fruit ministry begins. And that ministry is enduring. It lasts forever. When the fruit and the fruit and the gift do not exceed each other, they go like this. Those who can match their gift and their fruit have an everlasting ministry. Those who have a gift going ahead of their fruit, such circuit their ministry. Because you should have a character that sustains your gift. A gift is given. The fruit is cultivated. It's grown. And it takes a while to produce the fruit. A gift is given immediately. And so, I, today, as I go to, to a close, uh, to allow maybe for reflections or questions, I have lots of young people who have been called into ministry. And I love this. It's good. The Bible says the laborers are few. Harvest is plentiful. But I'm afraid they're getting the wrong idea of what ministry is. Because they're being raised by orphans. And orphans can only raise orphans. So there's an orphan spirit in the church. People who need validation from the pulpit because they don't have it in their private space with God. They come out because they think God would validate them what they do for Him. I was with Angus here in Great Town. I went to his farm because I preached at Mighty Men conferences. So we came here. And we landed at King Shack and we drove to Great Town. And he um, was addressing all of us who go to Mighty Man. When he was speaking about what Mighty Man is, what it represents, that we should make sure we represent the heart of Mighty Man correctly and not misrepresent it in any way, any form, which is good. And talk about this, make sure we preach a unifying message, nothing divisive. Let's make sure we honor Christ and we, we just bring the man to Christ. We don't go into via any different funny messages, which is understandable. Then in the, in the midst of that, he began to zoom out to me. You know, not that I've done anything wrong. <laughs> but he said to me, you know, Africa, when I, when I began in the ministry, the question that people would be asking is, which ministry, how, how's the ministry, what covering do you have, and all those questions. That sort of validated me, validated us outside there, his ministry, where it is. So now they ask me, how's your family? They don't ask how the ministry is. Your validation now is the state of your family. Is a, is a badge of validation. Yeah. How's the family? How's Jill? He says, now, the focus is me. He says, now, he says to me, young man, focus on the family. <laughs> I felt like, like, why me? I thought I was the youngest there in the group. But 
um, he was saying something very fundamental, very important. That you are judged, don't be a public success and a private failure. He didn't use those words, but I use them in my book. Private failure and public success. A person with a reputation out there, they cannot be confirmed what's happening in there. The children and the wife cannot agree with what people know about this guy. They are forced to have a posture of honor and respect because it's a role. But privately, they don't buy into this thing. I mean, I've got guys who beat their wives, but they're preaching. Their wives come. They say, look, this guy. And they, some of them cheat on their wives. Their wives come and says, I don't know how to stop this man. And, and the gift, the gift in the pulpit, ah, ah, the charisma, the gift is like, I mean, you would, if you listen to this guy, you want to be born again, again. You, you make an altar call, you want to lift your hand, and like, I want to give. He's so powerful. He's such an orator. He hits it. He hits all the points. Like, I want to get born again. This is a powerful message. Such a gift. Character embarrassment. Daltari, money misappropriation, um, no care for the family. <laughs> like, for instance, preacher at a mighty man conference, sometimes 30,000 people there. So it's wonderful. Eh? People get saved and people. <laughs> Some people we preach there. When I step off, some people don't even know who you are because they only see on the screens and of distance. So when you are amongst them, I'm going to wear a cap. They don't even recognize me. So I'm like, now I'm incognito. But I was there. They're like, you look like that guy that was. And I like, mm-hmm. and I pass. <laughs> because they, that's so, it's such a, it's so far. And so, then you get off that platform, you go home. Hmm? There's no crowds. It's a family. We ran out of milk. Look, we need to go. Go ahead and get us milk. I'm like, yeah, milk. Uh, okay. I almost want to say like, whoa. Do you people know who I am? I'm a man of God. I'm a man of power. You telling me about milk? Yes. Yeah, you were a husband. Yeah, you're a father. We need milk. You know, so. To, to balance, some guys therefore don't want to take off their comment. It's difficult. Because it's part of who they... So they get home with their bishops. They just don't know how to put it off. It's just it's difficult. They, they can't put it off. You know, like for instance, I mean, I, I've got a television program. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah, I've got a television program on Faith Broadcast Network. Every Tuesday, half past five. And on, th- on Saturday at, at 12 o'clock. It, it, it's a, not a preaching program. I said I never go. No, not never. I said I won't go to television preaching. There's many preachers. I do a t- discussion program where there's questions. I don't want to be preaching. There's enough preachers. I said I'll do a program where we're dealing with real topics, racism, culture, conflict, whatever the issues, and ask questions and debate with students. I don't want to preach. So it's like that. There's an audience with questions and interaction, like a talk, whatever. So because of that, and uh, so I have lots of emails, inbox from all over the continent, because it's on three continents, this broadcast. So I'll have uh, things from Zambia, from Kenya, people who emailing me from Nigeria, from everywhere, because they're watching and they're so impressed by the clarity of the word. But the majority of guys who are in ministry who would email me would, would say, Hi, I'm Apostle John. I was blessed by your program. <laughs> Immediately, immediately it's a turn off. Immediately I'm like, for me, I'm done. I'm like, I don't want to convert. I don't want to continue. I mean, how, how do you introduce? I mean, I'm a minister. I've been for the last 20 years. So when we're ministers, I, I don't know about you, but I don't find that doctor introduces himself to another doctor as a doctor. 
unless they're talking about a specialization in a specific area requiring to, to mention that. Because we, we are in a professional setup, and you tell you I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a gynecologist or I'm a heart. Unless it's necessary. Already they know they're physicians. So you don't go to a, a, a doctor's conference and every doctor they greet each other like I'm Dr. So and so. That's why there's doctors like doctors' conference, they're all doctors there. They know that. We, doctors have come together for the conference, so they know everyone who's here is a doctor. So you don't have people over coffee say, I'm Dr. So and so. I mean, you are, you all are, I am too. But with pastors, I'm like, I'm Pastor So and so. I'm like, okay, I don't know what do I do now. Like, do I say pastor? It's ridiculous, man. You're a brother. You're a brother. And you, I write about this in the book. People will not, some people get angry being referred to as a brother. It's like a demotion, like a disrespect. I'm like, you're first and foremost a brother. Okay? You're a brother. Accept that. You are a brother and then you have a ministry. So, that's it. So when I greet you, I say, hi, my brother. For some people, some guys, I make an emphasis. Deliberately. Hi, my brother. How are you? Deliberately. I'm making that deliberately. Hi, hi, my brother. How are you? I can, I can, I can see, I can, I can see the offense. I'm like, get over it. Stop that. You're a brother. <laughs> so, and it happens not only, you know, it's not, it's not a cultural thing. Well, let me put it this way. Sometimes we mistake cultural expectations with biblical instruction. In my culture, we don't refer to another person their first name. That's a cultural expectation that has nothing to do with the scriptural requirement. So in my culture, I refer to an elderly person with a prefix, something before the name. That are so-and-so, or put so-and-so. That's my culture. But that's not what the Bible says I must do. So we should differentiate with what the, what the culture expects of us and what the Bible tells us to do. Okay? So I still call a, a elderly person, Pastor so-and-so, Mfundi so-and-so. As, 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 because of that culture which we both share. Right? Now, he, if he, if he, if he, if he instructs me to refer to him as Pastor so-and-so, then there's a problem. Respect must be something I give, not something that's demanded of me. It must be me who does it. And therefore it's more powerful when I respect you out of my own volition. Not you requiring that of me. Then it's not really respect. I'm simply fearing you, therefore I, out of avoiding any conflict, avoiding any issue, I'll give you just to get over the scene. Okay, Pastor so-and-so. So, so we, we, we have that, um, I mean, <laughs> so I was talking to Angus at, in, in, in Jeffers Bay recently, we had a mighty man conference, and so he just ministered, so he comes to me, so we talk. So I'm like, so I'm like yeah, yes sir, and I'm like, yes sir, he says to me, please do not refer to me as sir. He says to me, it's not, it doesn't connect, it's Baba. You know, he feels it better than Baba. Uh, you know, he feels that he, he, he has more power. <laughs> no, it's just going call me, sir. Rather, he say Baba. Okay, Baba Angus. Because it's more affectionate, really, according to how he feels it, to him. He feels that it's more affectionate. This one is more professional. It's cold and clinical. It's like, it's a professional thing. Baba is more affectionate. It's more real. It's more African. It's more, we are here together. In this space. So I thought, okay, hey, yes, sir, yes, sir, that's what I was doing. He just rebuked me, not this one, don't call me, sir. You know, call me Papa. So next time I'll remember it. It takes me a while. 
the rapper around her. Because, I mean, when you're at this kind of conferences and you see the kind of respect that people have for Om Angus, I mean, you, you don't know what to do. It gets hectic. You know, helicopter, helicopters fly here, private planes fly here, and people, I'm like, Yo, this is serious. This is serious. And guys run around, walkie talkie talking, I'm like, Yo, this is serious now. <laughs> it's like, you don't know what to do. Okay, where do I sit? You're panicking. You know, and uh, because, okay, let me, call, let me say something that may sort of I bring balance in this. The leader and his, his uh, gift and what God has given him, a leader is not guilty of the privileges of power and influence God has given him. He's guilty for what he does with it. Okay? So, so it's not a problem for a person to have a certain position that God has blessed him with because of his faithfulness in serving God. It's what he does in that position that determines how he answers to God. Okay, so, so for a person to be able to gather one million people, it's not that it's wrong, nobody should... It's like a prideful thing, it's like he's a, he's a cult leader. No, it's like he's got an influence. And that's the grace of God and nothing wrong with it. If that position becomes this, it's all about me kind of thing, then heaven begins to respond and says, now you've messed it up. Okay? Because otherwise, otherwise we're not... Because I'm saying this because when I go to some churches, there's almost like leadership must be flat. There must not be a pastor. There's some churches that are taking this thing to the extreme. You know, there's no pastor. We're all equal here. Really? Then you should have then taught, just got your own Bible studies and do that. Why did God let me not be an engineer when I wanted to and called into ministry? It's because he wanted me to play this role. And therefore, not that I'm special, but I have a function that is unique. That God has called me to, and I have forsaken all my life to do this function. So, therefore, you have to bear with the fact that I have this role. You don't have it. You have your own role. You could go to an engineering firm. Guess what? I'm not leading that engineering firm. You're leading it because it's your firm. I don't go there and say to all your employees, they are all equal here with you. I acknowledge the fact that you're the CEO, you're the founder of the company, and you've played a specific role, and we acknowledge that. In the church, therefore, there is somebody that God has called as a visionary point leader to guide us in what God wants us to achieve in the church. And there's nothing wrong with acknowledging and respecting that. For the price the person pays for what God has called him to do. And the prayer, and the visitations, and the seeking the face of God for what God wants to do in our lives. So I'm not taking it to the extreme because some places I go to, I realize they are anti-leadership. It's like it's all flat structure. Then where, why are the 12 apostles? Why didn't he just preach to crowds and have crowds follow him? Why the twelve? The twelve were entrusted with truths that the crowds could not handle. The crowds only can only receive the parables, but the disciples, he spoke the meaning of the parables. So there is somebody who is special. And amongst the 500, there's a 70, there's a 12, there's a 3. He did that. He didn't have the 500 in secret chambers. On Mount Transfiguration, there are three. Mount Gethsemane, there's three. At the highest, there's only three. At the lowest, only three. So those who saw the glory being revealed were these three guys. Those who saw the sweat like blood were these three guys. Because they could handle what they were looking at. Other people could not handle it. Okay. So there will always be people who are, who are like primary in the Gospels, whom God has called, with anointings and graces that we aspire, we look up to. It doesn't mean we worship them. But we respect what God has done through them. And the price... They've paid because it takes a huge price. I'm not saying it depends on us paying a price. 
But to say yes to God and to do what He wants, it takes a lot. Okay, let me stop there. In the few minutes are remaining, and uh, perhaps you have a question or a reflection on the various things I've said. I open the floor <laughs> for that. Make the place equal. In other words, what you're saying is this. You're not guilty for having privilege. One time I was at Virtue University addressing students on the topic black pain, white guilt. Because I've got a video like, a talk like that on YouTube. And so they didn't tell me that they would have, they'll open the meeting to all the students, even non-Christians. So when I walked into the service, I saw EFF guys. So they're like, okay. They're about to be heated. And so the discussion went via into land. So I made an example, which apparently was a bad example. It, it, it proved to be, well, to them. I said, my son is in a school, in PE, private school, private school, I think, Christian school. And he's got a friend, who's Josh. Josh is white. And they're friends. No problem. They don't see color. So Josh wants to go home with me without even asking his parents. And I said, no, you can't ask him. But I said, Josh doesn't see me black. He sees the father of his friend. So children don't see color. So I thought, good example. I thought to myself, bad example. So the EFF guy lifts up his hand. Give him questions. Oh, so you are privileged, eh? <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. So you are privileged. I said, oh yes, I am privileged. And I used to grow, I grew up in the 80s, underprivileged. Now I'm privileged. And my church is in an underprivileged area. I said, you, what, you have a problem with that. If you did not want privilege, why are you studying the best university in the country at first, if you hated privilege? Because you want privilege. You have a problem that I got that before you. <laughs> you would not have come to Verts if you had a problem with privilege. Yeah. This is the best university in the country. You came here because you also want privilege. You have a problem that I got privilege before you. If you had the same opportunity I'm having, you would take your children to the best schools in your city. You would do no different than what I've done. You have a problem that I've done it and you have not done it yet. Yeah. That's the only problem you're having. Now, I was amazed. The people of EFF around them who were like, yeah, yeah, now nah, like agreeing with me, like, so they're, they're leaving the guy behind and like, I said, that was quite amazing. So there is a way. So, so, so therefore I tell this, I said this to the young people in a, in a gap year school in Jeffreys Bay, 90%, 99% white, that school. So I said, guys, please, you want to go to UCT from here? Don't act as if you're not privileged. It doesn't help the conversation. Don't, don't be apologetic. Don't, 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 don't deny the reality of your privilege. It's what you do with... I said that. I made an example. I said to them, your church has booked me in, in Jeffreys Bay in a guest house. And I woke up and I ate, I ate muesli and with plain yogurt, whatever. I said to them, that is privilege. Okay? I'm not apologizing for that. I woke up and I ate pr- muesli in this guest house. I don't apologize. It is what we do with privilege that matters. Because issues... Because everyone who says privilege is a problem, get them privilege and see they will, they will not take it. Okay, privilege is a problem. Take, he has privilege. Do you take it or do you not take it? Nobody will say no to privilege. So, so it's what we do with privilege. So I don't see why we should create guilt around, for instance, in the issue of colonization, decolonization, these big words that they speak today. My answer is quite, for me, it's quite simple. Okay, if you make coffee and you put coffee, you put milk, you put sugar, 
Now, so if you have a problem with the sugar you've put in the coffee, you know you cannot take it out. You might dilute the coffee with more water or with more coffee, with more milk, to lessen the, the level of sugar. But you can never take the sugar out. It's the same with colonization. We might dilute it with a little bit of more things we think are lacking. But it does not say those things which are present are all wrong in the product. Maybe there's too much of them, but not necessarily all wrong. Because who's going to tell us we should not have this or that or the other? We don't need it. We don't need education. We don't need... um, I mean, I don't know what people would say we don't need. We need to fly to Europe. I'm not taking a ship. I'm not not going to Europe with a ship uh, for three months and perhaps die of scavy. I'm going on a plane. I'll catch you later. By the time you get the three months, I would have gone to Europe five times. Because that's the privilege we have of, of being civilized and being in a modern world. We use smartphones. And so who it came with is less of an issue now than what we do with it. And can we use it? I'm a Christian. So I'm like, can I use this to advance the gospel? Look, somebody came with the wrong motive. For instance, I mean, let's be honest here. When the African people were building this nation, and they did Jan Smarts, which is called O.R. Tamana, and, and ESCOM. They, at that time, thought that ESCOM would only electrify white areas. There was, no, there was no budgeting for ESCOM electrifying the whole country. ESCOM was not built to, to put electricity everywhere. It was built mainly to electrify suburbs of white people. Okay? So, so those were selfish motives. Jan Smart was supposed to be for a few elite who can fly. Okay, so, so we can talk about all the bad motives that they did. But for goodness sake, the infrastructure now exists. It exists now. I mean, who's to care? I mean, I go to, like, I go to Nigeria, I go to Kenya, I go to everywhere. There's no airport like OR in Africa. I mean, I go to Stockholm airport. It's bad. It's not even compared to OR. Stockholm in Sweden doesn't even come to the level of OR Tambo. So, so who's to say the infrastructure now is wrong? It's wrong. It's already there. It's the best in the world. It's one of the best first class. So let's use it for everyone else. Let's expand capacity rather than destroy it because now we're angry of who built it and why they built it. It doesn't make sense to me at all. It's like, it's crazy. People want this. African people are flocking here from all over the continent. The reason why is because they know this is the best country in Africa. Let's go down there. They know that. They know the infrastructure. They go to Nigeria. The roads leading the airport in Nigeria to Lagos, going to the airport, is two lanes. Two lanes with potholes going to the airport. I come here, OR, Johannesburg, six lanes, all clean. Flat, plain, six lanes one way, six lanes this way. Don't see that in parts of South Africa. I go to Zimbabwe, Harare, the, the, the power, the lights go on from the airport, and then from then on, you are in darkness. My husband's how we speak to my children, with darkness. And there's no light. But in South Africa, you've got light, light, signage, directions, roads. Yes, there's history, but we can build on that history into the future. You know, so that's, that's my view. Asking. Okay. So, so Christian students, most of them are struggling in how to make their faith responsive to the social issues. So, they find the majority of Christian students don't know what to say in relation to the issues that are seemingly atopical. So they will either just become like submarine or just like, um, like ostrich. Just disappear. And I'm saying the Bible has answers for everything. 
including racial issues. We just need to apply it properly. So they would have a conflict. So when I was called to VETS by the students, they, the brief was that, the minister said, the brief was like, they said, look, help us to work through these levels of hatred that are pervasive, that are feeding the university. We are Christians, but we feel identity politics are pushing us into a corner. So we don't want to miss it, but also we can't ignore what this thing is about because there's a huge push from strong movements to take people in a certain direction. So they said, help us navigate this. So I came into that words auditorium. <laughs> and so I began to teach on, on love, which infuriated EFF people. Made them angry. How can you love white people? I said, listen, um, I've tasted love. I've tasted hatred. Love tastes better. Yeah. <laughs> so I've done hatred before. You're asking, you're trying to win me, you're, you're selling me a doctrine of hatred. Tell me where it has worked in the world. You, you're telling me, you say to me, I must leave Jesus and take your doctrine. One guy, I spoke to him, I thought I was preaching to this guy when I was answering, because I addressed him uh, quite pointedly. I said to him, you arrogate yourself a position you don't deserve. You arrogate yourself a position you don't deserve. You think you know better than Jesus. I said, when this man, Jesus, spoke about forgiveness, you think you know better than Jesus. He died the most excruciating death of that time. He knows, for, he knows the conditions requiring forgiveness. And you think in hindsight, reading history, you can tell Jesus was wrong when talking about forgiveness. You know better than Jesus with the privilege of hindsight. I said, I can never leave Jesus and take your doctrine. And uh, so... Unless you can tell me how to solve this thing governed by the value of love, I'm not interested in what will not work. Many South Africans today are ready to kill for the land. Very few are prepared to die for the Lord. I am not going to get a piece of land, a piece of debt, and lose heaven. I will not get land and lose God. I will lose land and get God. So it's a choice. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? So I'm not advocating landlessness, but I'm saying in the scheme of values and priorities, if we sell for the landless issue, it has to be governed. So a Christian cannot allow their heart to be filled with hatred. Because that means they've allowed another Lord to govern them. And so I tell them, guys, be careful. So I always tell students, tell students, Christian students, I'm always warning them. I said, guys, I am not denying the pain you're experiencing in this university. I tell them, it's like a tube. You are pressured. You are under pressure. When you press a tube, a toothpaste, whatever, the contents are exposed by the pressure. The pressure is not responsible for the contents. It's only responsible for exposing the contents. So the pressure did not make you hate it revealed hatred was latent. So be glad that you see the result and the reality of who you are in your heart and deal with it. Okay? I said to them, look guys, I travel at my demand conferences. I, I go everywhere. I, I stay in VIP spaces where there's 40 people in the VIP space. I'm the only black person. I'm like, you mean they're telling me that there's no other black person who could be VIP except me. And everybody else is white is VIP, including the children and their dogs and their girlfriends. 
I mean, really? Can they get it so wrong in a country with 70% black people? But this is what I experience. So therefore I'm saying, guys, it's not like it's fine for me, everything is, is on the door. I still am struggling. I go there and sing myself, what am I doing here? Why am I here? This place is not changing. I'm like, why am I here? And I thought to myself, well, you're not here because you like it. You're here because Jesus wants you here. And you're nothing but a donkey. you got to do what he wants you to do. So non-Christians, um, <laughs> unfortunately, the majority of them, think our faith is irrelevant in as far as social conditions are concerned. And some of us are not even helping them to get it right by the postures we have. So they think our faith completely irrelevant, completely not helpful in addressing real social conditions. So they're like, being a Christian means being a pacifist, being a defeatist, being a person who is just an apologetic of what is happening and not addressing real contentious issues. So in my program on TV, I deal with real contentious issues. Deal with land, racism, inequality, prejudice. We deal with, I tell the students, they, the, the producers wanted to ask the questions, the students who asked me questions, censor them, questions before I would get them. I refused. I said, no way. They said to me, look, what if they ask on live TV, they ask a strange question. I said, that's what I want. Wow. No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to. I want it to be a real discussion. They, they, I said, Africa, they must, we must receive the question and then we look at them before you get them. I said, no. No. I don't want that. So they, when they, we watch them asking me a question, you know that's the first time I'm hearing that question. I want us to have a real conversation, not censored. Okay. So they ask me anything. They ask me about land, about racial conflict, about Lobola, about this, and I say, throw it. Now, I'm not saying I'm an expert to answer every question, but I trust Jesus. I trust His Word, I trust His Spirit. And I'm not threatened by what He's wanting me to do. So they ask, they're free. So, you know what? You know, let me tell you this. Knowledge is acquired, is received from different sources, but wisdom is received from above. Okay? So when I'm getting a strange question I've never experienced before, I'm like, I will wait and think to myself, what am I going to say? So I'll pause. And I taught this to students in Polonkwale. One guy asked me, before God created the heavens and the earth, where was he? So the room got quiet. It felt like, yeah, now we've got this guy. So, and then I made an example of them. I said, guys, when you get a question, the question comes to you, where was God before he made the world? You see, I said, and I kept repeating this. I said, guys, you see, I'm thinking... So they were laughing. They were laughing. Oh! I said, guys, there is answer for everything. Just don't rush. <laughs> the time I gave the answer, the guy who asked the questions was standing alone clapping. I- I'm not even finished. It's like, ah! I said, I told you. We think difficult questions have no divine answer. We just, because we're ignorant, we think God also is. He knows everything. We just need to listen to him. He says, do not worry what you shall say. It shall be given to you what you shall say. So even unbelievers, I don't argue with them in crowds because they tend to build on the mob spirit. I want to deal with them as individuals. It's okay. Tell me, okay, what's the issue? So when I converse with people, one lady I was told to talk to who's an atheist, horse person, re. That's re. No, that's re. Finding an African person's atheist is re. We don't have that thing of not believing God. You know, it's not, not our culture. So this lady is an atheist. So I'm sitting with her, I'm talking to her. She started by saying, you know, when I got my epiphany, I thought, you. When I got my epiphany, my epiphany, 
So, I mean, to talk to a person who uses words like epiphany, I thought to myself, this is going to be a difficult one. You, I mean, who, who speaks like that? Who, like who, ordinarily, who speaks like that? When I got my epiphany, I said, yo, Africa, you got in trouble here. So we went on and on and on and on and on. In the middle of the conversation, I then said to her, did you grow up without your father? She says to me, what does it do anything? I said, just answer me. She's shocked. Like, why are you answering me? Did you grow up without your father? She says, who are you? Like, she was like, no, what's going on? I said, maybe, maybe the God who supposedly doesn't exist revealed this to me. I said to her, I sense a father wound. When we're done, she says, I've talked to a lot of people. I've trounced Christians. They've left their tails between their legs, threatening me about hell, and they couldn't answer any question. But I've never spoken to a person like you. I said, maybe this God who supposedly doesn't exist was present here, and he will reveal himself to you one day. So it felt like Agrippa said to Paul, you almost made me a Christian. She didn't confess, confess there and then, but I sowed the seed. So when I talk to people as well on culture, on beliefs, I never aim to convince a person. I always aim to sow enough seeds of doubt. Then go away. But I know, I'm, I'm expecting the time they look at that goat, they remember Africa. Hey, Africa said this. Then that's enough. If I can just create a little bit of doubt, I've done my job. The Holy Spirit will finish the rest. They were standing on that goat and they would think, oh, but Africa said the goat doesn't help. Yeah. Anyway, I think, I think we're done. We're out of time. Thank you for, for that. Yes. My television program? It's, um, okay, the station is called Faith Broadcast Network. It's DSTV, channel 341. No radio. <laughs> no radio. Channel 341, Tuesday, 5.30, Saturday at 12.